Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. On today's dissection, we dissect Shane Black's new movie, Nice Guys. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. Darn right, we talk movies. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Nice Guys. As we head back into the 70s, uh, we have Dimitri Panos. Hello, movie fans. How are you? Good, good. And the lovely Sarah Stratton. Hello, hello. Who now has a Twitter? Sarah underscore Stratton. I do, I do. Um, all right. The Nice Guys, Shane Black. $50 million budget. Rated R for violence, sexuality, lots of nudity, <laughs> language, and brief drug use, of course. Pretty much everything. Everything you can stick under in our rating. Let's just throw it in there. Awesome. I would rate L.A. rated R for all those things as well. <laughs> Absolutely. I would, yes. L.A. is definitely a rated R town. Uh, so, let's talk about it. How, how did you guys feel overall? Ladies first. I always, I, you know I always go to you first. I yeah. hate going first. Fine, I'll go first. I love this movie. This was a fun movie. Um, I didn't really know much going into it. I knew it was a detective movie. I knew it was kind of set in the past. Um, I'm to me Shane Black. I know kind of uh, there's a whole history to him. People love him. I'm. It's not that I dislike him or like him. I'm just not as familiar. Obviously, I've seen Iron Man three and so forth, but uh, I have not seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Lethal Weapon. Uh, to be no, no. Really? No. See, none of the Lethal Weapon. None of the Lethal none Weapons. I mean, not the. I mean, none. He's he's, he's did, the first one is you know his acclaimed film. None. Uh, last seen... last Boy Scout. No. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. But all that to say that this movie was great. Um, you know, and some of the humor, yes, it, it goes, it's almost like a surprise comedy of like, oh, wow, that just happened. That's kind of funny. Um, in both nudity and violence. And I enjoyed that heavily. And I, I thought that the dynamic between the two is hysterical uh, and just kind of how their cross ultimately met. Um, you're just thrown into this, and, and like a great murder mystery, you're like, wait, what's going on? And then eventually you start to figure it out. And the fact that it's the most absurd plot in the world, wait, it's a porn with a narrative? Yeah, it's, it's, no, it's, it's, it's a porno where the plot is the point? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was a great line, and... Yeah, and that's what that. pretty much, and it, it, in, the, in a nihilistic sense, just like uh, Ryan Gosling's character, nothing changes. Yeah, but, nothing and, changes. And, it's, and it's porno mixed with the auto industry. Yeah. <laughs> Go figure, to make commentary about the auto industry, and of all things, the catalytic converter. Uh, it, yeah. You know, it's just which bizarre. All played, it's just random. Which all, it, well, it's it's the definition it's of a MacGuffin. All, it's it, it, absolutely, and they all played key points in the seventies: gas, air quality, catalytic converters coming in, gas prices, and porn. <laughs> and, and Shane Black finds this amazing way to intertwine them in a MacGuffin because that's really not the point of the story, but it's a great mystery to be involved in, anyways. Absolutely. Sarah, what did you think? I need Marissa here, because normally it is ladies first, and then I go second, and it's a great pattern. But, Marissa, get over here! But, <laughs> Who's not seen the movie? But since you go first, I can now go second. Um, I really, really enjoyed this movie. Um, as uh, risque as it was, um, I can't label it as, like, in good taste, but it wasn't in 
bad taste, if that makes any sense. Um, I just thought that all of the different types of comedy they allowed to come through in this movie worked great together. Um, I would not, I don't label myself as like a Shane Black fan. I've seen a lot of his movies, but his name doesn't draw me into a movie. Um, what really made me see this was the star part where they got involved. I wanted to see how this duo would act together. Mm. I thought they played off each other really well. Um, and overall, it was just fun. It was just a fun movie. It was out there, but it justified itself in being out there. Um, I think that maybe if I hadn't had found this at its core funny, I would have hated it. But since I was laughing and it was so enjoyable, um, I was able to forgive all the things that I think normally I would label as like, this is very misogynistic or this is very like rude and in bad taste. But because this was such an enjoyable movie, I, I, I don't know if I just forgave it all or if it worked well enough for me to like it. I, I thought the tone right from the get-go was set very well between the kid and the porno mag and Misty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there she is in this horrific um, accident <laughs> In a center fold type of way, right. showcasing, and then it's just endearing. He just kind of covers her up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I well before I go into my Monster Squad, nope. Good God. Um, so I love this movie. Um, I I've been waiting for this movie since they started advertising. I am a big Chain Black fan. Um, you know, and this is the guy that's credited for. For inventing more or less the buddy cop movie in which all other like buddy cop movies like followed afterwards. Yes, there were movies like 48 Hours uh, before Lethal Weapon, but he like really it was it was always dialogue, story, uh, drama, action, and the way in which he wrote. Um, and, and this guy has and and at the time there was him and people like Joe Esterhaus who, who were top, I mean, getting top dollar, and this is in the 80s, where they were getting $4 million a script, which was unheard of at the time. And Shane Black, uh, you know, last Boy Scout, lunk his goodnight. I always felt that he was, people can, can, can say he might have been misogynistic, but he always wrote good female characters. Look at Long Kiss Goodnight, for, for example, Gina Davis. Um, and he always treated kids I felt with respect that they deserve. And this movie showcases this, like, great. Ty Simkis, the boy that you were talking about, was in Iron Man 3. Uh, um, so, in any case, just going on, you look, this wasn't a nice movie, but for me, it was a hell of a good one. And and you know, with it was hilarious. Shane Black's, to me, it's, it's pistol-whipped smart dialogue with a hint of Abbott and Costello. I mean, uh, his references are in, in, in homage to L.A. Noir were fantastic. Um, and this is a guy, too, who's weathered the storm, the Hollywood storm. He, he went away for a very, very long time. He couldn't get a script sold after, I believe, it was um, Long Kiss Goodnight. And, like, this guy, nobody wanted to even look at him. There's a great story about Shane Black where Sag, or, or the writer, the DGA. Uh, no, who's the, who's the writer? WGA. The, the WGA and such. Like, this guy was churning out hit after hit. And WGA is, like, pretty much when he went to apply, they more or less said, we don't want you. We don't want you. We don't think that you, you know, you're a party boy and we don't think that your quality mm-hmm. of script writing is good. And... 
you know, this is a guy, he, he went away for a little while. He had a little, uh, I don't want to say... Um, hiatus? He, hiatus is a good thing. And, and, and he had writer's block. And uh, thankfully, Joel Silver, who still believed in him, uh, gave him a shot again with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And then, you know, he Robert Downey Jr. And then Robert Downey Jr. returns the favor and says, I want you in an Iron Man 3. And then we get Nice Guys, which he co-wrote with a buddy of his, but... I think once we start getting into how this the the the, the genesis of Nice Guys, you know, it, it's fantastic. It's a wonderful. It's original. Well, it, right? you know, it's not a franchise picture. Well, it could be. It could be, but it's not no, on it's, its own. It you know, yeah. it, it, it works stands on apart. Its own. Yeah. Well, it doesn't need to be part of a franchise. Uh, the interesting part to me, you guys actually point this out. Um, you know, and you guys didn't know that you guys did it together, but uh, you know that the fact that it started off That's as why a TV I go show to her first. Yeah, <laughs> um, the fact that it was going to be a TV show and it just didn't get picked up in that way. And for me, now knowing that information, what's interesting is that when you kind of look at it and where it ends up in terms of the end of the movie, it does feel like a, um, a TV show because nothing actually happened. And much like an episode, like you're reset for the next episode right. and whatever. You know, if it's a uh, network show it's got 22 episodes and you kind of go through that whole thing and so it's just interesting how it's just drawn out in terms of two hour length with obviously a lot of sex violence and drugs well the 70s too was was a cornucopia should i say of of cop shows between the rockford files mcleod kojak streets of san francisco it, it's like what the medical drama is today or csi is today i mean so he based his stuff off of, like, the Rockford Files and things. And, yeah, I mean, it's just really funny that there was even considered that they wanted to go television show. And CBS was sort of like, no, we don't. It's a little bit too See, edgy. And I understood the rationale why CBS didn't want it. The one one of the examples they reference in, like, articles and interviews mm-hmm. is specifically when they put the little girl in the trunk. Yeah. And CBS was like, uh-uh, you can't put her in the trunk, even for a minute. But they also referenced they took it to places like HBO, which you would think is typically willing to take more risks as far as nudity, violence, like um, really pushing those limits, and even they kind of weren't up for this in te- in TV form. Yeah, and look at what HBO puts out. And I'll, I'm willing to argue, ten years ago, yes, maybe that exec at CBS. I, I mean, when you see when you see what's That's on true. TV today, oh, nice. yes, it's not rated R like Nice Guys, but they would have written it to, to maybe to yeah. push an envelope. But could, putting a kid in a trunk, which. Again, it's historical because it plays to a good joke because the valet is like, oh, no, man, I, I can't. No, no, you got to yeah. have your keys back. They don't play it just – Shane Black didn't play it just to be exploitive and mean mm-hmm. to children. He actually had that – it was a great comedic thing and yeah. they had to go back and, and also, to be fair, again, she put herself in the trunk, number True. one. Number <clears throat> two, one of the things that comes out of this is that, you know, whether he's, whether he's a nice guy or not, He's trying to be a good father, right? Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. Don't say and stuff, and the, like he's. It's, it's a it's a grounding part to the film. It's yeah. a key absolutely. essential point on why this film works is that relationship, not only from the comedic ass point and giving a kid kind of a more intellectual role, a more um, deep role, but it also grounds your main character yeah. to have something to fight for um, and bring him out of this just like ridiculous drunken stupor right now i I actually sort of kind of related 
or equated the relationship uh, between the, the, the father and daughter in this movie to uh, another 70s great movie, The Bad News Bears, to Amanda, to Walter Matthau's character, a buttermaker. I mean, where where the daughter was the one teaching the father and mm-hmm. and such, and it had that sort of kind of dynamic. And and again, when Shane Black, I think, always respects kids and gives them a little bit more empowerment. You know, he almost treats them almost almost like for as a John Hughes, except he makes them a little bit stronger. He puts them in these insane situations, violent situations. There aren't that many movies in which. A young teenage girl gets thrown through a window, either. Um, so, it, it, <laughs> or sits and introduces herself to like porn watching, right? right. You know? So, you know, but but from that comes good comedy, teaching the dad and like, hey, don't take the Lord's name in vain. There's another great scene. He goes, well, I didn't. I actually found that very useful. Um, and when she says, "Don't kill him, or I'll never talk yeah. to you again." She was a good female. She was a good female child character. Mm-hmm. Not very not Disney esque, which no. too is is good. And nothing against the Disney esque, but it's good to see in a rated R movie mm-hmm. that that a girl can stand up to that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and uh, I, I have to also applaud if uh, if you guys like seventies cop TV shows, the Tomorrow Show, Kevin Undergaro's show. Um, go to thetomorrowshow dot com. They talk half the time. They just talk about seventies TV. Yeah. So I just have to, you know, if you want more of that type of stuff, go check out a few <laughs> episodes. As, uh, Kevin Undergaro is our co-founder here. Absolutely. If you didn't know. Um, all right. So, you know, one of the interesting things, obviously, all that was um, was there. But then there's a lot of kind of interesting stuff of where they really also drew um, inspiration from. And it was actually from real life events um, through sort of Joel Silver's involvement. He's the one that kind of brought in uh, Jay Joseph as someone that they knew. And, and based off of those true events, um, you know, Joel kind of, you know, inserted that side of it, mm-hmm. um, which I found interesting. Yeah, I hadn't heard too much about this from any of the marketing or not a ton of interviews. So it was interesting when, uh, from my understanding, from the little information I actually gathered on Jay Joseph, is that he was like a veteran, and then he worked as a PI, and he met Joel Silver, mm-hmm. and throughout the course of his career, not just this particular movie, he's kind of interjected his some of his personal stories, um, environment mm-hmm. stories, and but it does draw from some of it draws from true events, not like the plot draws but like little aspects well you know and i I think it's it's good i you know i don't know how much you can say that this is based on a true story or anything like that and also i don't think typically like comedies don't benefit based on a true story you know yeah unless you're like the big short where you can you know there are certain things like that where real life events are very comedic very rare exception but the the you know and that's what's interesting though the events that that the nice guys you know, it's, it's swirling around are all actual events that were happening. There was, there was big talk about the catalytic converter. Los Angeles, and it's, I mean, and, it, and it's, it's, it's smog count. Like telling people to stay in, don't go outside today. I mean, Before 6 sort of, p.m. Right, we still sort of kind of get that today, mm-hmm. but it was even... I heard about that on the East Coast. Um, so... You know, and the catalytic converter was a really big deal. Uh, you know, the auto industry, gas prices, things like that. 
you know, they, they set it within this real events, but they just blow it up. Like, they Absolutely. don't even, yeah, they, they, they just blow it up. That's all. And, you know, I mean, that that's the fun side of it all, right? When you get the parody, like, I mean, I, looking back, I'm sure 10 years from now, what you can do with this day and age of what we're going through, well, it, it would, you know. The parody. other thing, too, is that people forget that porn movies used to be able to advertise in newspapers, so yeah, that that, that didn't happen. That, I think while I was alive, nay nay, <laughs> it doesn't happen today yeah. at all. I mean, but you know, porn theaters were able to advertise in things like the Boston Globe or the Boston Herald, and like that Pinocchio. You know, I wanted to sit in my face and talk about the first thing that comes up joke. Like that was a tagline in an actual Pinocchio porn type movie that was around in the seventies, and they could like. The 70s, it was almost anything. It didn't matter. It was like people weren't as sensitive. It's like, okay, so we have this Pinocchio porn movie next to a, a reissue of the Snow little, White. The Little Mermaid, yeah. <laughs> so all that stuff going on was all very 70s-centric, uh, so to speak, along with the disco, along with the, you know. There was one thing for me that was glaring. There was a glaring omission in this movie that... I, I was a little bit surprised, and I, I don't know why it was omitted. I can only guess, but can anybody figure out? Uh, all, 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 all I'll say is the setting of this movie takes place in 1977, okay? So they had a billboard advertising Jaws 2, which was, which, which was coming out the following year in 78, okay? But there was think, another big event going on in 1977 I, that they did not... I think I have it in my trivia. ...shied away from... Because it was really huge Did in 77. Nope. It, I'll say this. It was a movie event. Mm. A huge movie event. I'm, that, that, no, that, that it wasn't... Airport 77? Airport 77. There was an advertisement for it, but it was much bigger than Airport 77. So it was the same star... It wasn't in the movie. It was the world's worst... Star Thank Wars? you. Star Wars. <laughs> like, there was no... There was no marquee that had Star Wars on the marquee. I mean, Star Wars was huge in 1977. I don't see why you couldn't use the, like, just put letters up on a movie marquee that said Star Wars because in 1970, whatever. Legally, could you put Star War? I don't know why legally you couldn't put Star Wars. I think you could. Because it was 1977. It's not a, you know, you you could say it's in Mrs. Satire. I, I don't know. But that was one omission for me, like. You're mentioning Jaws 2, Airport 77. I go, 1977? This is October. Star Wars was still doing huge business, even though it opened in May. It was a big deal in 1977, particularly in Los Angeles at the Man's Chinese. Well, to be fair, it's... money, like, to pay for the... Yeah, I, th- I think they want to stay away and just be safe. I mean, hey, to be fair, it's also not the most historically accurate. I mean, there's music from the 80s in there now, and things like I that. I get it. But that was one, like, again, a kid growing up, Shane Black, apparently not too, too much older. You know, he's older than me. I'll just say that. But, you know, it's just weird to see, like, to not see Star Wars mentioned anywhere. Or, or at least, like, a glimpse of a kid dressed up as, like, Something. Princess Leia. Yeah. That's all. Fair enough. Or a porn star dressed up as Princess Leia. I mean, <laughs> right, exactly. There were well, to be fair, Slave exactly. Leia was not around at that point. Didn't matter. It was porn. Man. Although that would have yeah. been progressive, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So let's 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 talk story. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> How to even start on this story? <laughs> um, Let's start with the duo, right? I loved the just, you know, the through line of falling down that just happened repeatedly. <laughs> Um, oh, the boom. parallelism of just the falling down and how that was used. <laughs> like, I don't know how to Falling down this. from buildings, you mean? Yeah. Oh, like generally. Falling down. It was used throughout the entire thing. Ryan Gosling, I feel like, spent half of this movie playing on the ground. If it was, like, the ground of his kitchen to falling down a hill to, like, he was constantly just, like, falling over. Yeah. I like that he accepted his situation, right? I mean, yes. the, 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 the fact that mm-hmm. when he falls out mm-hmm. um, and lands in the pool and the other guy doesn't, that could have been, if it wasn't done in the proper way and it wasn't set up in the proper ways, it would have been the most horrific thing you could have ever seen. But the fact that he's, I can't <laughs> die, yeah. I can't die. <laughs> and, and again, this is a, you know, uh, well, I think it was, uh, it's a Shane Black trope almost, um, you know, people falling into pools and whatnot, but... Number one, Russell Crowe, Ryan Gosling, sort of kind of an unlikely matchup, you would mm-hmm. think. Um, and But together, their chemistry to me, they were hysterical off of each other, I felt. On their own, they were hysterical, but when you put them together, the the one was, you know, they were in a sense almost an Abbott and Costello. You had the straight guy next to the slub who was Ryan Gosling. And their chemistry, I thought, was I thought that, fantastic. Yeah, and I thought that kind of how they both kind of shed some ego in their <laughs> own way for this role worked really well. Um, because I think typically, historically, I think you can book look up, you can look at both of these men as very like masculine icons like gladiator russell crowe and like ryan gosling who's i feel like very famous for having his shirt off like they are and then instead russell crowe put on weight for this he was like i'm not competing with russell ryan gosling ryan's just like constantly messing up not really being the good guy not being successful like really only getting through this on luck and like stupidity, and he's not a good detective. Like yeah. he takes advantage. Of, he takes advantage of his clients. Um, you know, he, he is. And then Russell Crowe. It's like you said. Yeah, he. It was the the way that they reacted to one another, whether mm-hmm. it be verbal or just the look. And you know, the the dialogue that was written for the both of them, and how they delivered their lines. Hence, and then the 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 apparent. You know, again the the response to that whatever that dialogue would be, you know, and it comes out of left field. And, you know, one of the, another great gag is, well, um, um, it, it was a line where, um, well, you know who else just followed orders? Hitler. <laughs> and, and, and Russell Crowe's like, yeah, there you go. He's like, yeah, uh-huh. he's yep. like, this is what I'm dealing with. But it works because, number one, it's, it's a line of dialogue that you don't expect to go that far left. And Russell Crowe's, like, just the way he just looks at him going, yep. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> well, each of them has has a very good history, right? And, and you know, whether you fully understand it or not, you, you get where they're coming from. And so in terms of, in terms of Ryan Gosling, uh, Holland's character, the fact that, you know, he, he's a crappy detective and he steals money. It's also the fact, like, it was set up very perfectly where my husband's been missing since the funeral. So he's dealing, like, in his own world, He's this is the stuff that he's dealing with. And it's to that absurdity. It's like, 
Like, lady, what, what the hell you want me to say? Like, your, your husband's dead. Like, yeah, sure, I'll find him. I'll find him. I'll get on it right away, you know? Because, and, and, and it, in that way, it's a little endearing because he, he doesn't want to be the one to be like, lady, your husband's dead. Yeah. You know, he doesn't want to break that news to her. And the other great thing, too, about these characters and actors, too, they're both no strangers to, to what? To, to very good L.A. noir. Russell mm-hmm. Crowe in L.A. Confidential. Ryan Gosling in Drive, mm-hmm. like their and characters you, you couldn't did, be what was, more, the, what was the L.A. Squad or something like that? It was it was with Emma Stone. It yeah. wasn't quite as good, but he was in it. Yeah, uh, the Gangster Squad, I believe. That's it. Um, so they're they're you know, and they've been in far better like L.A. like really good L.A. noir movies, um, but their characters are complete departures from those characters right in those other movies. Um, it was great to see too the surprise. Like cameo I had no idea about was um, Kim Basinger mm-hmm. coming in also from L.A. Confidential, and I was like, oh, all right, that's a nice little touch uh, going on here. But you're, you know, Sarah, you're right. Egos like sort of kind of set aside. Mm-hmm. The press they did for this too was was great. They, they they did a whole series of video shorts about them going to therapy together, mm-hmm. and um, I also have a video that that we should that I had in my notes. Um, there, there's a great scene of Joel Silver being Joel Silver on them and yelling at the both of them and he brings up to Russell Crowe it's like you were in fucking gladiator like you know it's like come on and he goes we got we have to social media <laughs> he goes you have two million tweets you're a gladiator for crying out loud you suck oh that's not how <laughs> I thought he was gonna bring it up I thought you were gonna say because I know that Russell Crowe like kind of refused to do as many stunts or any of the things on on this set. He used to do almost all a lot of his own right. stunts. And he's like, no, I'm kind of my body's destroyed. He'll go through and he interviews. He's listed like everything that's wrong with him: his cartilage, his ribs, everything. And he said it it made things a little bit harder to shoot because he was so strict. And they really had to pay attention to what was going to be done by the stunt double mm-hmm. and how they were going to do all of this choreography. And I don't think he felt guilty about putting that on his record, but he was definitely taking... Russell Crowe was just like, nope, this is my line. Yeah, I know this, this, this video, and, and if we can find it to maybe end the show, and because it really is funny, I think it's on YouTube. Um, I found it on comingsoon.net, and I guess if you um, Google Joel Silver, the nice guys yelling at Ryan Gosling, it's really funny, but it takes place on the eve of the release, or the movie had just been released, and Joel Silver's concerned about the grosses. Mm. Uh, Very, very funny stuff. But the mere fact that you're you're right, and it points to dropping their egos and just having a good time together, and you wouldn't think their, their, their repartee, so to speak, would be as good as it is in this movie, but I think it helps, too, when you have... I think it helps, too, when you have Shane Black directing them and writing the dialogue. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? Going back to the stunt thing, I, I think it actually works in the, because uh, if you look at Holland's character, he's much more sort of involved and, and kind of, uh, you know, he, he has a little bit more energy to do certain stuff. Whereas uh, Russell Crowe's... Um, Jackson Healy. Yeah, ja- Jackson. He's he's a lot more methodical. Mm-hmm. And just when, even when the guys come to his apartment, um, the way he handles it is very... It, it's a very calm demeanor, whereas you, you could see Holland just going to guns a-blazing and, and just getting out there by sheer luck. Yeah, and, and this is one... This is another thing that I really enjoyed about this movie, too, is that 
it really did give background to each of our characters. So we're not looking necessarily at stock characters. You know, Jackson Healy, again, it's a great scene where uh, Ryan Gosling's like pissed drunk on this diving board. And he's like, hey, so tell me about this diner story. And he's like, no. And, and this is the type of Shane Black exposition that you get where the other character just falls asleep. But we learn about mm-hmm. Healy's background and that this one act that he performed in a diner of saving the, the, these other customers made him feel alive again. And, mm-hmm. you know, so you get where he's coming from. You also understand where Holland's coming from as well with his daughter. And again, what other movie has there ever been where a main character does not have a sense of smell? <laughs> and it plays a major point. It plays a major plot point in I this don't know, movie. I don't know if I'd give it a major plot point. Well, I would give it a, a it, That's why the house burned down. That's why the house burned down. Yeah, but you don't see the house burned down. No. Well, I, I didn't need to. There was no house. Yeah, there, there, was a, <laughs> there was no house, and they couldn't rebuild a new one. Yeah. So, um, so we do have the video. Um, Zach, if you want to go ahead and pull that up, here's the Joel Silver yelling at Ryan Gosling and uh, Russell Crowe. I know, but I mean, Angry Birds is shitting all over us, guys. <laughs> We're getting killed. People only care about seeing what they know. Neighbors 2, you got a 2. Neighbors 2. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions from the first one that people want to know. You should be tweeting. You should be talking about the movie. About oh, what? What are we supposed to do about Angry Birds? How many followers do you have? Two million. Oh, yeah, like two, like two million. That's not enough. And, and retweeting <laughs> is critical. You got to tweet and retweet. Tweet, retweet. You got it? The one we trending yesterday? Oh, yeah, but then Black China got pregnant. She what? It's a very competitive marketplace now. This is summer playtime. Every weekend, another big movie. Big, big, big movies. We're trying to, we're trying to f- find a place in comparing us to movies. I mean, this is not a Marvel movie. We're crawling through broken glass here. We need help. I mean, Downey's killing it. He's killing it. He's a one-man charisma machine. What do you want? Charisma machine? What's wrong with you guys? What do I got? I got two schmucks. You want an Oscar, what, 50 years ago? I need something special <laughs> that people are going to know about it. Congratulations, by the way. You deserved it. Who's a good night? now. Isn't it enough just to make a good film? No! You're a fucking moron. It's not enough to make a good movie. I mean, we got to get people in the theater. Come on. Get, 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 get. Uh, we have an idea. You dress up as Gladiator again, and Ryan, you're dressed up as, I think, a tiger, and you fight each other. It's funny. <laughs> it's funny. It's a fucking funny idea. We're fucking getting killed. We got nothing. I can't stand it. <laughs> So there I you thought go. that was actually a really good idea if he dressed up as Gladiator <laughs> and Ryan Gosling dressed up as a tiger. I think that's a brilliant idea. Should have done that. They should, yeah. Yeah, missed mm-hmm. opportunity right there. Yeah, hopefully they retweeted. Hopefully they, you kind of tweet and retweet. Oh it's funny Amazing. stuff. All right. Well, before we continue, um, I want to tell you guys about a great book series. Um, I love books. That's right, you do. Uh, I love books so, too. Uh, obviously, there's movies, but then there's also books from the comfort of your own home. Um, it is our sponsor for the week. It's the Fifth Wave book series. Um, the premise is, what if today was the last normal day of your life? Cassie Sullivan thought she knew what tomorrow would bring, but she was wrong. We were all wrong. The first wave took our power, killing half a million people. The second wave put that number to shame with tsunamis that destroyed everyone within 100 miles of the ocean. Goodbye, coastal cities. After the third wave, only the unlucky remained survivors of a virus that left only 3% of the world still standing. On the fourth wave, the others became us, inhuman beings hiding behind human faces. And at the dawn of the fifth wave, we had to choose give up or get out and fight. Um, Already a great sci-fi premise. Um, But that was only the beginning. In the last days 
Earth's remaining survivors will need to decide what's more important, saving ourselves or saving what makes us human. Rick Yancey's number one New York Times bestselling novel, The Fifth Wave, introduces us to a group of young people struggling to survive in the aftermath of this catastrophic alien invasion. Its sequel, The Infinite Sea, and the newly released The Last Star follow them through a series of battles and betrayals as they fight the ultimate war between life and death, hope and despair, love and hate. Entertainment Weekly calls the series remarkable, not to be missed under any circumstances, and urges fans, just read it. USA Today hails it, it as a modern sci-fi masterpiece. And the best-selling author of The Passage, Justin Cronin, raves in his New York Times book review calling the fifth wave wildly entertaining. The highly anticipated finale is here and will leave readers stunned. So, go to fifthwavebooks.com and check it out fifthwavebooks.com well, I'll tell you if uh, if just Justin Cronin is one of my favorite authors in this passage series uh, that he's talked about so if he's saying that this is good this is downloadable from my nook if I can get it from Barnes and Noble I will uh, download that series there you can also find the books <clears throat> at the website the the fifthwave right.com Ab- absolutely so check it out, you know, and uh, Dimitri's no stranger to sci-fi. He loves sci-fi. Absolutely. Um, a lot of our fans, you guys love sci-fi. I love sci-fi. Sarah loves just sci-fi. Sarah loves sci-fi. I just got left out of the analogy. I, I didn't want you to sci-fi. go first. You don't like going first. So <laughs> I, I don't like going first. I like going second. Number two is like my number. Okay. Actually, number 22 is my number. Well, now double it's number double. five. What? There you go. Number five. No, so, it's number two because I would die in the second wave because uh, I live close to the coast. Unfortunately. <laughs> All right. Well, so one, going back to um, Nice Guys and, and Russell and, and Ryan, too, their approaches to acting, I think, were very uh, different on set. But nonetheless, getting together, and, and Shane Black even says, he goes over, like, and you can sort of kind of see it. You sort, you, you sort of kind of get it. That where he describes Ryan Gosling, he's very playful on set. Um, and, and, you know, you look at, the, and again, I'll go back to Drive. When you see the intensity mm-hmm. in his character in that movie, it, it's crazy, but insane. And then Crazy Stupid Love, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, was the movie, uh, which he's great. He's great comedic. But you can see him, like, being playful with this type of a movie. And then you switch over to Russell Crowe who Shane Black said is extremely meticulous. He want, If he wants to change one word, he'll make a point of it. And Russell Crowe has had, let's just say, a reputation throughout of, of he could be a little bit difficult to work with, but I think that, that maybe the years have softened him a little bit, not just physically. I'm not, you know, but... Again, I think when you're working in a modestly budgeted movie such as this, <clears throat> that, you know, there are some things that you have to, you know, you're, you're going to go in and understand what this could also do for your career, which I think for both of them, I don't think it damages them at all. I think Russell Crowe comes off great, actually. The I, best movie he's done, in, in a, my a opinion, in a while. In a little while. I agree with that. I thought it was interesting how they both got cast. Right. Russell Crowe. Uh, really enjoyed the script, was on board, but he described the narrative as thinking it was really dense, there was a lot going on. He got presented with a list of actors who he was set to star star with, and when all of them were so comedic, he rethought doing the role. Like, he had invited Shane over to dinner, was going to make a mistake, and was going to tell him no. 
was going to be like, I read this completely differently. I'm not going to do this. And this is, and then before he could get to that point, Shane says, actually, Ryan Gosling's on board. And the whole objection completely got pushed aside. He was like, with that actor, Russell Crowe could do it. And then Ryan Gosling, who some people have rumored to say is famously really tough to cast, he was completely sold by the strip, script and was really yeah. easy to get on board. So it just sounds like everything kind of fit together. It yeah. almost fell apart. There's, it almost didn't happen. Oh, and there's a great Shane Black story about that about that dinner where <clears throat> he actually flew to Australia. And um, so he brings him into his home and, and Crow, uh, Crow offered him a drink. Um, and Shane Black said, no, no, thank you. And he's like, well, why not? And he goes, oh, you know, you have one drink. The next thing you know, you're in handcuffs. And, <laughs> and Crow's like, hmm, I like this guy. He's sharp. But that is typical Shane Black dialogue. And again, going into his history, he boozed it up a lot. He's, he's mm-hmm. He no longer drinks. And, you know, he'll put that into this movie. That, again, is another one of those things that gets completely flipped around. you got Russell Crowe, who throughout the entire movie is is so hard trying not to drink. Mm-hmm. He's so, every scene, he's whether he's at this disco party or where he's at this hotel, so trying not to drink. And at the end of the movie, he's at a bar, and Ryan Gosling goes, oh, you're back to drinking again. That's good. And, yeah. and <laughs> it's just a great line. But you can see that this is coming back from a Shane Black who who did booze it up a lot. And when he became sober, you know, but that's a great, you know, Shane Black, that's real dialogue to Russell Crowe. Yeah, you have one drink, you know, and you end up in handcuffs. And I like that. And there's a respect between our three main actors, the, the two actors and director, that really shines in this movie, too. But I love that, that he flew to Australia. Absolutely. <laughs> you know. Let's talk about Amelia, right? So she's, <clears throat> she's the crux of this whole entire mystery. And part of it's, you know, part of the mystery is figuring out, is she the main person we're going after? Because it's, Half of it's like, well, it's Misty. Is it Misty or is it Amelia? Because um, the crazy woman kind of throws the us uh, on that trail of like, I saw my niece Misty. Right. <laughs> Amelia. Well, her the costuming was beautiful. Her dress was fantastic. The yellow one. Fantastic. Yes, yeah. that yellow dress was fantastic. Uh, but she drove me crazy. I want. I just wanted to like just make her stop running. I just wanted to like stop her. And do um, what with her? Just stop her. If she just stayed put, things would be so much easier. And she just kept running. Um, but I thought that she, it was a, it was nice to always be having someone, I guess, to chase throughout the film. Well, throughout part of the film. I mean, again, it goes back to that, that, that Shane Black, like, how important is this character? Like, we set Amelia up to be this very important part of the movie. And... The way, you know, and it's these guys trying to save her, and yet she is a very part of this mystery, almost a linchpin, but then she gets killed. Well, it's look for her, save her, and then avenge her. But, yeah, and at the same time, try to figure out this mystery, because I thought that was, Mm -hmm. well, it's a twist again. She's running running away from that great great gunfight that takes place at the house, Mm -hmm. Um, and, yeah, she just ironically, coincidentally, ends up uh, hailing down the assassin that's going after. And even the assassin's like, oh. This is too easy. This is too easy. And she dies. That's a lesson to us all. Well, but again, in a movie like this, since she is set up to be the main purpose and plot driving point, 
then you kill that character off. Where do you go from there? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I didn't. As it was happening, I was like, okay, he's gonna put her in the car. He's gonna right. drive off with her. And no, just all doubt aside, just yeah. bullet to the head, dead. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Just like that. Yeah, you're you're very much right. Of oh, what happens now? Yeah, that's an LA noir. That's a that's a twist that you you don't necessarily see coming. But when it happens, you're like, okay, well that yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, where does that put our? But it also our characters. It, what I liked is it became a uh, a point of contention against them because it was very much of, well, we didn't do anything that we set out to do, mm-hmm. and the last part of it was okay. Well, at the very least, we can solve this mystery, and if we do, then we've at least accomplished something. And again, the the big twist of it all is they didn't do crap. No. Nothing got mm-hmm. better. No, but they, they at least figured out what the hell was going on. And they're better right. for it. And they're better for it. Margaret Qualley, too, as as um, uh, she was, I really liked her. She was very nice. She, that The yellow dress she was in was great. And again, great dialogue great between her and the daughter together. And, and again, why is it that the young girl has the stronger head saying, don't run away! Like, what's she? What are you doing? <laughs> I don't know why, but I liked it. Same here. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know why that was the case, yeah. but it it worked Amelia, really yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, you you can understand from Amelia's perspective, like, you know, at this point, she's paid off how many people to potentially like not be involved, right? I mean, that, that's right. how uh, that's how Jackson got involved, and this was hey, he got hired to basically stop people from looking for her, right? And that didn't happen, and so at this point. You know, she doesn't really understand the truth about all of this. Like, the, the, Holly, you know, it, it's great. She understands. She knows her father. She knows, obviously, Jackson at this point. But Amelia, she's she can't trust anybody. Yeah. And she made the stupid mistake of trusting them. <laughs> you don't trust strangers that are driving when you're trying to run away. Right. Absolutely. Wow. She she trusted the wrong person. Like, she should have trusted the nice guys. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. Or at least the little girl. Um, and you, it's okay, so let's go back to Kim, Kim Basinger, because you, you had brought her up, and, um, obviously, it's a, it's a, they reunite since LA Confidential, her and Russell Crowe, um, and I loved, uh, I, I loved how they kind of demeaned, um, Holland's character in this, like, here, have a, have a mint, or whatever it is, right? and he's just like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> just totally like, like a kid in this entire like thing. check. Like when right. they were when she's writing the check for ten thousand, he's like five thousand. She's just like, yeah, five thousand. Absolutely. Again, that was a very that was a very funny Shane Blackish kind of because th- it goes in places that you don't think. Like in a regular movie, they could have been like, well, how about ten thousand? Nope, she just tears that check up. Five thousand's perfect. Yeah, let's do that. I was wondering, we've been giving this movie, I feel like, a lot of praise. I think the look of it's great. I'm sure we're going to talk about that. Was there anything that stood out to you guys that you didn't particularly like, besides Star Wars not being mentioned? Or, um, you know, I, here's the thing. Uh, this is not a nitpick. I, I really want a sequel to this. Mm. Only because, because they left it so open-ended and so fun. Um, I don't know if I had to nitpick anything. It, it, it's it, it's tough. I don't I don't know exactly what I would nitpick. Um, you know, other than you, you, again, I think you have to. The, the biggest thing that I don't think works for audiences is the ending. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to you have to understand why that ending is the way it is, and it's a very bleak ending. It goes back to you know like the sun comes up and the sun mm-hmm. comes down, and nothing changes. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know if that if you don't want to accept that as a form of reality, you're gonna not like this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to an extent. But again, you know, and I know I'm not I'm talking to the, there's well here who maybe not you know you're not the Shane Black fans, but for me the the ending of you know one of his tropes too is and if you look at all of his movies, Christmas time is involved in one way, shape, or form. It's even in Iron Man three. Mm-hmm. Um, and this movie, it started in October. Where does it end? It ends at Christmas time. Like, that's just one of his, it's like, and I was even wondering, I was like going, wow, this could be the first Shane Black movie that that he's done that doesn't have Christmas involved. Oh, up there we go. And I know Monster Squad isn't set around uh, Christmas time at all, but, uh, you know, he... I love that thing, and I loved how it ended because you're right. Nothing really gets settled. We're going on, but the dialogue in it, number one, the whole thing about setting up the nice guys detective agency was great. The dialogue about electric cars was, yeah. was oh, within five years, the, the, the Japanese are going to make these electric cars. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it was a little bit off, but it's, it, it's, it's just funny stuff. And, yeah, the sun rises, the sun sets. We figured out for ourselves what's going on here. You can see this as being sort of kind of episodic in what other mayhem they get themselves involved in. Um, you know, I can't think of anything that I... I can't point to anything that I didn't like about this movie. Um, again, I was... So, this was one of the movies that I was most looking forward to seeing this summer. And the, I can't the, even, the, the only slight inconsistency... They, they were both baffled... Um, by um, what, what's it, Savage Sid or City of Sid? What's his name? The porn producer. Oh, um, uh, but Eddie, the, when they found him dead, um, I expected Holland to react that way, but not Jackson. Jackson was a little, you know, I, I expected him to have seen enough death where he wouldn't be just thrown off by it and want to vomit. Um, you know, so, but, but again, it, it's just. Overall, like if, if there's a glaring plot hole or anything like that, I missed it. Like I'm I'm very hard pressed to nitpick anything, really. Um, and is it is it the world's greatest movie? Is it for everybody? Not necessarily, but for me, I do like noir. Uh, you know, going back like Maltese Falcon is one of the movies that I used to watch over and over, and, and and I just like these types of movies, and I like how it flipped it. Right, going back to the whole alcoholism thing, detectives drinking alcohol and smoking cigarettes that's a trope but this guy but they're you know you would consider a functioning alcoholic right and that was like a thing to look up to this guy could drink six bottles of whiskey and still get the job done this guy can't even drink a sip without like tripping so it's it's just funny um and i and i like those two elements together yeah i i again i'm hard pressed to see that for me very well paced and, and going, yeah, it's very hard for me to find anything uh, that that I could even so much outside of Star Wars. Um, you know, I mean, I could say, okay, you know, Jaws 2 was coming out in 1978. Were they promoting that movie in October then? I, I don't remember. I just remember Jaws 2 coming out. But it was just really, I, I, there's nothing I can point to Again, that I, mean, I can I say I, plot I think- point wise. That bothered me. I mean, from from an actual, like I said, from a factual standpoint, there are, there's music from the yes. '80s and this and that. But does that? I look at it as a whole. Does that 
number one, do I care? Number two, does it ruin the movie for me? No. Hmm. Um, and you know, maybe it's because I'm not from that era by any means. But yeah, I mean, did you have any nitpicks that were like, oh my god? Um, I thought it ranged. Actually, went a little long for me. And like, I remember thinking, wow, this is a feels a little bit longer. I thought that the ending could have been more memorable, specifically with, um, oh my god, uh, Kim Basinger is like right. her ending. The fact that I had to really rethink about like, wait, what ended up happening to her? I think they could have added another comedic punch there or done some sort of imagery. And I actually really didn't. Wasn't a huge, and these are all very much nitpicks because like I did really like it, and that's what found it interesting to me because normally we do have more things that aren't right. like movies go off the tone or there is huge plot holes. But I was like having to really look for was there anything that made me not love this, and I actually wasn't a huge fan of Matt Balmer in in his role. To be fair, as you thought Johnny it was Henry Boy. Cavill. I did. To be fair. <laughs> I did. I Which was, no after I, she showed the comparison, I get it, but he yeah, he I, and Henry I mean Cavill. I know, but I kept like you know when you just like start confusing people, I was like, wait, no, that is is not but I didn't like him that much in the role. Really? Why I, not? I mean what was here's the thing, I don't think it was supposed to be likable at all. I know. I didn't believe him. It like changed the tone to me. Uh, he like for some reason his character did not work out. I didn't believe it. No, interesting. See, and again, I love the whole build up to the character because when that guy says, "Oh, oh you're yeah, so both fucked," you know, John Boy's coming into town. He's gonna kill you. He's gonna kill your partner. He's gonna kill your family. And you're like going, number one. From the 70s, another trope of the 70s was this show called The Waltons, which featured um, uh, Richard Thomas played John Boy, John Boy Walton, who mm-hmm. had a mole on his face. And uh, I think Richard Thomas, uh, I knew he was in season one of The Americans, he's still mm-hmm. around today, um, but I believe that they were watching The Waltons early on in the movie, and so when this reference of John Boy is going to come into town, you know that he's a badass, and the whole thing is, why is he being called John Boy? And, oh, he wears glasses, and he has this, he looks like John Boy. <laughs> and and you couldn't pick two, again, a complete 180, because John Boy Walton, who would not be this character, and that this John Boy is an assassin, a ruthless assassin, um, who has no qualms of throwing kids through windows? <laughs> and I don't know that gunfight too. I, I well, here's the thing: you had to, you know, I thought they did a good job. You had to escalate the violence of "quote unquote" the bad guys because our nice guys were not that nice, as they right. point yeah. out. And so, in, extremely skilled. Yeah. So, in comparison, you had to do a, even more horrific acts of violence to lessen. Oh, these guys aren't so so bad. Right. You know? I did have, okay, I, I found one nitpick, if you want a nitpick. So at the hotel, while the car show is going on, the whole thing about the projection, the projectionist and getting him, they he was still alive in a dumpster. Like when that, that seemed to be just to move the, because everybody else in John Boy's path ends up dead. Gone. Mm-hmm. Gone. And he just seemed to be beat up really bad and in a dumpster. Ah. Okay, there's my nitpick. The, no. That's it. So We got one. We got one. But but I'll follow that up. How about the first time when they were in the Burbank Hotel when they were in that Burbank hotel? The Burbank Airport. The Burbank Airport. Okay. Is again, that a real thing? The 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 funny scene oh so there's a scene with the bartender. 
And then they're going up the elevator. They step, they go to step off the elevator. A guy's been stabbed in the throat. And then they see another guy getting shot down a hallway. And their reaction to it was, to me, was just priceless. It's like they just take one step back in, (laughs) press the closed door. And then the guy falls out the window. And they're just, like, pretending not to even notice. I mean, that, to me, again, that's Abbott and Costello type of humor. The scene where they find that porn producer... That comes right out of like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein with with the with the light in the match where he light the face and he's going. Because <laughs> 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 what? What are you? <laughs> and I'm like, I was in tears. I like literally in tears, laughing so loud at that. Who does that today? Shane Black. Uh, it was so. just fantastic. Let's talk about LA. Yeah, overall, this was some of it was shot in Georgia, but yeah. some of it in LA. Um, <laughs> But for Shane Black, it is a trope to use L.A., and it, it is kind of its own character, right? Um, and I forget which one of you pulled. There's, there's like, a bunch of quotes about Shane Black talking about specifically L.A. and what it means to him. Um, so if one of you did that... I think we both probably did. Maybe referencing the same article. Yeah, we're probably referencing the same stuff. But it is, like, he talks about L.A. as his promised land. It's something that he holds very dear to him. Um, there's this timeless sort of entropy about LA, which he tend, which he loves. People don't go up in a flash; they just just disappear with a whimper here, and the sun bakes us all into the ground. Um, at the same time, there's the illusion of glamour, and I love that the '70s was you um, was you had the Hollywood sign in tatters. Yeah. So he there just seems to be so much more than um, LA has always been a central part of film that. Shane Black really does feel an imagery and connected with and symbolism in the setting of LA, in what beauty means here, in what fame means here, and how and kind of the layers of people um, in LA. So he he doesn't use it because it's a popular or well known place. He uses it because it means something to him. Yeah, the atmosphere, and plus he's a big, big fan of pulp fiction type detective novels which a lot of them take place within LA <clears throat> LA sets itself in such you know it's it's great nor whether you are talking about Humphrey Bogart or whether you're talking about Chinatown which again which this movie somewhat plays with plays with mm-hmm. you know to an extent it's a great nor town into his argument about people finding him like misogynistic about you know with women and you know but he said there were so many women who came and you know busloads and busloads to to become that star and they end up working in real estate and I've got nothing against you know working in real estate but this town can can use him up or and you don't your dreams can get squashed um, and again he's a person that lived that L A. Lifestyle when 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 he sold Lethal Weapon and it, it became what it was, and he was starting to get two million, four million for a script. He was you know, he was partying it up in his house like that's what he wanted. That's what he believed Los Angeles Hollywood was all about. But when things like when you can't get into the WGA, you know, even though you're writing hits left and right, and they feel that you're not good enough. Like, you're not good enough to be in our union, in our guild. And then when you sell, you know, when people give you $4 million to make a high-budgeted movie, and that said movie only pulls in 50 all in, and I believe that movie was Long Kiss Goodnight, which, again, 
a really good movie, and, and he writes, he's not misogynistic to women, like, Charlie Baltimore, as played by Gina Davis, is a great, strong female character. He, you know, he just went into a writer's block, and he went away for a while. And But he even is, you know, he's, he's quick to point out that there are other people that he was coming up with who also, like Joe Esterhaus is the guy that wrote, like, Basic Instinct, and he was another multi-million dollar screenwriter, and he's just... He does nothing now. He's no longer, I believe, even living in L.A. And Shane Black has come back, due in part, major part, to uh, Joel Silver, who's always believed in him, and, and Robert Downey Jr. So it, it's this town, if you do, if people are standing by you and you have that support and you're willing to go through the ups and the downs, like this is a guy that has weathered that L.A. noir storm. And he's gone through it all. So this is another thing that I really... He's a good inspiration, but he's great to listen to. If you ever listen to him talk, too. He talks in the same way that he writes. It's fantastic. And uh, you, you actually pulled it. The, there was a question that he got asked. <laughs> what keeps you up at night? Um, right, Dimitri? You yes. found that quote. Do you want to talk about that? Because I thought the answer to that question was interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, he, he goes on. His 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 answer to that is: there's always a certain fraudulence. I feel, I, I feel, because I think the dirty little secret is that it's truly a collaborative medium. What it boils down to is: there's a camera rolling. I'm standing there saying stuff, and at the end of three months, there's a product. I've been in this business for 30 years, and I've seen a lot of people I came up with, people whom I respected, admired, thought they were much better, just fall by the wayside. And somehow I'm still making movies at a fairly decent level. I'm still, uh, you know, I'm blessed and incredibly, unaccountably, I like this, unaccountably lucky to have had that opportunity. I'm just the luckiest guy in the world. I'm scared to lose that. He also has mentioned in many of interview his mortality. I believe he's 54, 55. He understands he's sort of kind of on that other side of the hill. To be writing in today what is a very young person's world universe and to be and to try to stay relevant, you know, he when he was given the opportunity for Iron Man three, you know, he took some bold, he made some bold, uh, bold choices with the main villain, the Mandarin, and it pissed off a good handful of the Iron Man and Marvel fans. And he was saying, I was getting pictures. People were sending me like death threats. They were sending me pictures of the Mandarin like, effing like sodomizing me, and. He's like, that's what he goes, you know, that's what this town can do. He goes, but Joss Whedon, you know, Joss Whedon, he said, came to him and said, look, man, he goes, it's all part of trust in that machine, the Marvel machine. And he goes, and he helped me through it. And Robert Downey Jr., because I gave him that role in Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang, you know, which he was very grateful for. And he feels that it resurrected his career. He said, I want this guy to. To 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 uh, to direct and write Iron Man three, which was huge for him, and then like it was his biggest budgeted film to date, mm -hmm. and then he goes and does this movie, which is modestly budgeted, but now he's going to be doing Predator, um, which I can't wait for because he was actually in the original Predator movie, um, so it, it's it's good. Uh, he like I said, he's weathered the storm, he's stood the test of time, and you know as far as screenwriters go, a lot of people can learn from him. Absolutely. Um, one of the, so obviously with film noir, the look is everything. And so, uh, you both actually, I think found the same article. It's a very um, long article. So if you want a lot of information, you can that's right. look it up or you look at say, our notes. 
So, uh, Philip rose a lot. Um, he's the cinematographer. Sarah, how, how would you summarize kind of... Because he, he got asked a lot. I mean, down asked, to the, f- the framing of it, the yeah, lenses. Downtown, the lighting he Planet used, Network. how he did everything. Yeah. But I really picked, started reading the article because of how it started, which is how they picked the look of this 1970s movie. Because for me, there was a lot of... I did not live in the 70s, but there's a lot of 70s feel from the costuming to the music to the different locations. It just felt so alive and like loose and fun. But one thing about getting the look is that how they decided not to film it like it like they did in the 70s. And Philippe says that he was working in the 70s. So what did that even mean? What did that talk about? There were so many DPs and filmmakers working right. in the 70s. Were they going to go back to that old technology? And he felt felt that the film didn't need that. Um, He just thought that they could film it for what they have today using the techniques they know now and that it wouldn't look... He didn't want it... He didn't want to have to change the look. He thought the material and everything else involved would carry that essence. And I think that it's true. There was no part of me that wanted to watch this movie in a different filter or in a different look or with different angles. Um, I thought that the fact that he kind of just owned his own vision and didn't try and copy used, like, served this film very well. Yeah, and I believe it's his first time working. <coughs> You're right. Mm-hmm. Gonna make it. Uh-huh. You guys continue. <laughs> um, I think what else, for me, anyways, that was. Um, interesting was I believe this is his first foray into mm-hmm. digital. It is, and you know they could have gone, they could have gone in a sense because Quentin Tarantino does this, and I'm not, don't don't I'm not picking on Quentin Tarantino. He does it to effect, and it works for him. But sometimes he will make a movie of that time period, and he'll like have the scratch, like like um, his uh, um, uh, what, what was the, the the Grindhouse kind of movies, yeah. okay. And he'll add the scratches and the pops and things. And they could have gone that way in this movie, for sure. Um, But no, I I think using, you know, the filming in anamorphic, the types of lenses that he Mm -hmm. used, the lighting that he used, um, all, it still looked like the 70s to me. And then when you couple that with your production design... And whatever you do, I mean, you don't need to use those filters so long as you have a smart DP. Or as long as there's, like... The essences invoke, like for instance, there was a movie that I thought did well. I think it was Steve Jobs. That as they transitioned mm. through the movie, through the yeah. they also transitioned in their film style or the look and everything. And that really worked for me really well because it was showing like time and adding this different element, especially because you were pretty much in the same setting sure. over and over again. But this film, when there was so much flavor to it, right. it didn't. It didn't need anything more. No, it, it, no. I think it would have been too distracting. Yeah. What, what, I, what I also liked, because um, he got asked about the types of lenses he used, and he used prime lenses as well as zoom lenses. Yeah. And it's always interesting because people get so hung up to me about uh, about primes versus zooms. And he admitted, like, we, we used zooms um, because it, it became faster. Mm-hmm. And I, I finally like that because it, it really does... You have no idea. Every time I hear lens change, like if I've ever made a movie, lens change takes ten minutes, and it slows everything down. Um, and so it got, you know, and, and I think he, I, I finally like so incredible like him to say, you know what, we we use these. It matched pretty well with everything that we had going on, and it sped up the process. Well, yeah, it, it, there's he has an interesting thing, and this is a great behind the scenes. 
take a look um, where he's asked about what's your process of setting up a shot. And he's like, well, Shane first will block the action. Then we discuss how we're going to shoot it. Okay, we need this shot, that shot. We don't need that one. Breaking down the scene is a matter of figuring out the important aspects and making a little list of what you need to see in order to understand and enjoy the story. What do we need to make that charter scene funny or dramatic or interesting? I'm not saying you have to write this kind of thing on a piece of paper. Once you've done that list, it's, it's, it's not brain surgery. You just sort of look and see from which position you can achieve that. Then ask yourself, do you want to make, do you want to move the camera? Uh, then you ask yourself, moving the camera is basically deciding how you can accelerate, slow it down, intensify a shot, an idea or purpose. In order to do that, you have to have a very good knowledge and understanding of the script. Uh, what I do most of the time during preparation is basically read the script and know as much about it as I can. And that to me is very, very interesting because we always talk about collaborative like when you're making a movie between your director and his crew, you know, the director's like, well, I want this shot, this shot. And he's got to figure out how to light it, do whatever. But I just, you know, know the script. Know the shots that you're going to be looking for. Work it out with your director. Um, he's all you know, about efficiency. Craft. Efficiency. That was his big, efficiency, big efficiency, word efficiency. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, you know, to anyone who's making a movie, I mean, um, there is something. Like everyone always kind of – if. if to me, the way I always approach it, block, light, shoot. You go in, and just in this way, you block it out first. And, and it takes a little bit of time, but once you have it, then the day can go by pretty fast. Yeah. Um, and and efficiency like helps with budget. It helps with budget. And, like, he even had, you know, he said we used LED panels often because they're easy to hide. Um, yeah. So that's efficient. You know, they were very convenient in many locations. Mm -hmm. We could sometimes just plug them in a wall outlet, it was, and it was a way of going faster. So, you know, and I like the, you know, um, they obviously had a lot of great close ups and stuff like that, but, but their wides too. I mean, think about all the wides that they ultimately end mm -hmm. up using. Um, uh, and everything just looks perfect. Like, like I go back to, um, we spent a lot of time in Holland's apartment and the way you, you, you get spatially everything. And it's, and as a point of reference for the movie, like it's, it's supposed to be a house that they're, they're not really able to afford. So it's supposed to be a little upscale. Right. The only thing that brings it down is all the all the booze. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, like the the beer bottles uh, left over and the and the whiskey and so forth. But it was also like to a way of like okay, there were two scenes in particular that, that really stand out as far as having that '70s feel. There was the party, mm -hmm. um, and the way that that came in with the music and coming in on the band. Um, and then seeing everything around the house. And then the other scene to me was the car show, which, again, was very, you know, very 70s um, feel, look, uh, costuming. But just the look of it alone, you know, uh, and how they chose their shots just to make it feel that way. And obviously production design in the car. But I, you know, there wasn't a time where I didn't feel like I was taken out of the 70s. And it didn't parody the 70s. You know, it, it treated the 70s very real. Um, whatever situations were going on in the movie, the situations themselves were funny. But I felt that Shane Black and, and his uh, writing partner, Anthony, didn't really want to, they didn't want to, like, you know, um, spy who shagged me. They didn't want to do that kind of a, let's make fun of the 70s. I, I think there was a little TLC involved, you know, because I think that's where both of them grew up yeah. during that era. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
So let's talk about the music, right? Uh, John Ottman is one of the composers for the, for this. Um, the music's by David Buckle, but uh, Buckle. John Ottman, yep. uh, obviously a, a close friend of Anatomy's, um, and he's going to have a second movie this weekend. Yeah. A small one, but I'll be it out there, called X-Men Apocalypse. Yeah. It's um, a small, small movie. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the score to this, uh, you know, and I'll bring up a little bit, too. I, I uh, Speaking of John Ottman, and not just because he did our show, I, I pay attention to score. Um, and I was I was I was a little bit pissed because I had to wait a week for the score version of this soundtrack. It didn't come out on what opening it, weekend. It, it came out today. Came it came out today. out today. The score you can get the disco that has all the source music. That was available last week, but the score was made available today. So I'm already on my third listen of this, and um, I, you know I'll bring up X Men Apocalypse. They released that soundtrack about a week and a half, two weeks ago, for for whatever reason. And I can That's honestly say, yeah, it's really That's it, interesting. It, yeah, because it's usually week of yeah. What I can say about Ottman's score, and I can, you know, and I have to talk a little bit about both of them, is that I really believe, for as far as being a composer, I think he's at the. I think right now he's at the top of his game. I think what he does for Apocalypse is probably his most ambitious today, and I'll get more when we talk Apocalypse. But this score is just what he channels along with David, I believe it's David Buckley or... David Buckle, yeah. David Buckle. What they're able to channel is score from, like, you know, I was listening to things from SWAT, the Rockford Files, to Dirty Harry. You know, um, he was really bringing in a lot of these awesome references to make the Nice Guys theme and have it play out. And it's a fu- it literally is a fun score to listen to. Um, just because of all the influence that's that's in the in, in this, and he uses orchestration along with, you know, like guitar that 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 like type of thing that that was very popular in the '70s. Doing he also uses a lot of horn. Like if you watch Dirty Harry, it's a very structural orchestration with jazz kind of um, uh, a little shiffering kind of music. It's great stuff. Literally, I think. Ottman is in the top of his game as far as composership goes. And the crazy part is, I mean, he's he's a a composer editor. He's he's award-winning in both. That, to me, is just crazy because his schedule must be... I mean, he did the Days of Future Past and Apocalypse. He's done every summer movie editing-wise. Yeah. Yeah. And composition-wise. And that's that's the crazy part is that, you know, part of it when he gets to the end of the run is, how do I... uh, I got to compose this thing now. I got to wrap editing up. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, yeah, and he did. He didn't have to edit this movie, but you know, he also did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, mm-hmm. which again is a very Eleanorish kind of a movie, not set in the seventies, but it has. It's a contemporary movie, but it has a and he did feel. usual and suspects. He, yep, and, and and Ottman did the score for Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which again you listen to that score. Um, uh, one of the title tracks features Robert Downey Jr. singing. Um, you know, he's great, and he does a really good job in capturing the mayhem and mystery of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Um, and then in Nice Guys, he does a great job, along with his co-composer, in capturing the 70s. Uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, uh, one Easter egg that I really noticed right within the first 20 minutes of the movie. Bang uh, Bang Kiss Kiss. Bang Bang Kiss Kiss was right up on uh, a marquee uh, where our characters were standing in front of us. Uh, there yeah. we go. It's awesome. 
And that's the name of a porn. And, and David Buckle, uh, he's done he's done more TV. So like he's done a lot of Good Wife. Um, recently did Brothers Grimsby, um, and then did a bunch of video games: Batman, Arkham Knight, which was a great video game. So uh, cu- kind of a range there. Yeah. Uh, but I think you know I'm, I'm curious to see more from him. I mean, you know, I think he'll grow. I think it was a more. good collaboration. I'm, I think I, so. I would love to hear from um, John because I remember. There was one time where he he gets a double bill. Uh, it was on uh, a Halloween H2O, in which um, it's he's credited as composer, but then they brought in somebody else, and and there was there, there was some friction going on during that production. And I'm not catching that there was that kind of friction in composing the nice guys. I believe he was brought in for for some of his '70s type of influence to do and. It's it's listen. If you enjoy score as much as I do, even if you haven't seen the Nice Guys, give it a listen. Uh, you know, however you can listen to it. Um, I even believe the record company has a free preview of it. So check it there out. All right, let's talk box office. Um, did better than 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 projected. It was it was projected to gross around uh, ten million. Uh, came in just over that overall. Um, and worldwide total as of now fifteen point three million. On a $50 million budget. We got a way to climb. Um, but... But the reviews are good. Reviews are very good. Cinema score, uh, it's a B. It's a B minus the B. last time I checked. Which sort of yeah. kind of bummed me out. That's, it did. Be, because I'm like, what the hell, people? Like, I will never... I can't, You know, and anybody who tells you that they have their finger in the pulse of the movie-going audience, like, the movie-going audience will clamor and cry, I want originality, I want something I've never seen before, and then they're given to, they're given them that product, whether it's Nice Guys or something else, and they don't go. They don't, and they don't go in droves. And then they'll continue, like, look, support a Civil War, I get it, it's a great movie, but when that but there was that there, there was that joke of I think Shane Black said you know this is actually thought being questioned about the sequel um, he says I think it's a little premature to consider a sequel I don't believe in jinxes necessarily but we really need people to see this one before we can even talk about that we're up against some stiff superhero competition we just need people to you know maybe see Captain America six times but the seventh see us instead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Which is true. It's legitimate. I mean, Zach was in the booth. How many times have you seen Civil War? Three. Three times. And he was considering a fourth. Seriously considering. I just can't find the time to see any more movies. Yeah, it's it's just really interesting. And And I get it, but this is a rated R movie. It's not geared towards, like, little girls or little boys and... You know, not that if Civil I was a little boy, I would have loved this movie. I would have oh, been like, hell yeah. I would have been, again, if this if this movie were released in, say, the 80s or even the 90s, I think we'd, I think we'd be talking something a little bit different. Because these are the kind of movies, the 80s and 90s did not shy away from making R-rated movies. Because they were actually, the audience for them was could have been sort of kind of a cross-section. The only thing that I see different from this movie, and, and because a lot of people are comparing it to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, is this movie does not have a romantic interest in mm-hmm. this movie. It is, it I is was somewhat, glad it didn't. Yeah. It, it, it would have been bogged down. It would have been forced. It, it didn't need it. <clears throat> yeah. I, I don't think it needed it either, but that's the only thing that, that Kiss Kiss Bang Bang has the same type of whip, smart dialogue. You have Michelle Monaghan. This fantastic think about it this way. Robert like, Downey. I mean, ultimately, I don't know. T- to me, it comes, why do you want a love interest? Well, you just want a hot girl. Right. 
to me at its core, like you've got plenty of hot girls throughout this whole thing. True. So why do you, you don't need the love interest yeah. part of it? Yeah. No, it, I don't think it suffered from it. Why are you looking at me that way, Sarah? You disagree? I don't think that's typically why you need a love interest well, uh, is for that well, reason. Michelle Monaghan, though, in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I can argue, is a really strong female character in that movie. Mm-hmm. Again, Shane Black is not one who shies away from either writing strong kids and or strong women. Um, some of the characters in his 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 movies could be not nice to kids and or women, but his leads, and, and, and I think for the most part, he really treats them with respect. You didn't need a romantic angle in this movie, although they were trying to set it up with um, Ryan Gosling and, um, and... And the girl who gave them the money that wasn't right, the money. That wasn't yeah. the money. Again, what movie are you going to get a, like a, a honeybee in your back? Like when he was like sleeping, when he fell asleep driving, and then the honeybee is in the back oh, of the car. Oh, uh, yeah. Where's your and secondary the, gun? <laughs> where's what? your secondary gun? Oh, I must... I, I dreamt that. Because I think shoot. I dreamt that, didn't I? <laughs> like that's a, another great scene, too. Um, Absolutely. So, again, you want to look for something different this summer? Something that is original, something that's going to entertain you, go see The Nice Guys. I'm not saying don't see X-Men Apocalypse. I'm going to see X-Men Apocalypse. I'm going to say go see The Lobster. Yeah, I'll probably go see the, the uh, Alice in Wonderland. I'll the see lobster The Lobster, too. Like it's a good movie. movie. So uh, there's plenty out there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, any last thoughts as we wrap this up on The Nice Guys? Um, do you guys want a sequel? I do I not do. need a sequel. I do not need a sequel. Okay. Okay. I would I would love a sequel. I'm not sure we're going to get it, but I, I would love to see these two guys together again working with Shane Black. And again, only if Shane Black is is down is, for is it. captaining that ship. You know, to put to put these characters into somebody else's hands, I'm not sure I would really No, I mean that 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 wouldn't be. So only if the three of them were on board to make something would I buy into it. But with, with that being said, I'm really looking forward to and very happy that Shane Black continues. And I'm looking forward to his Predator. I'm looking forward to, to what he has coming up next. You know, I really do. Absolutely. Well, all right. That's about all the time we have for today. Um, if you guys want, you guys can download the entire rundown that we use that has all of the specific notes, the specific, the specific quotes that you know we don't always include but we draw from when we do our dissection so check that out it's in the description of the um of wherever you get it itunes youtube the website so forth and it has it just download it it's a pdf uh you can refer to it that way and of course comment along with us let us know what you guys thought about this uh movie uh, i think it's fantastic um in the meantime you can also uh, tweet with dimitri at dmovies1701. That's right. And Sarah does have a Twitter. At Sarah underscore Stratton. That's My right. Twitter. And it was recently her birthday. It was recently our birthday. Absolutely. It was recently we both their the birthdays. Happy birthday. Thank you. So, uh, and, and, thank you. And, 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 you know, Phil, at the very least, try to see Monster Squad. Um, I've got which some you homework. Did with with you Fred Decker. you got to at least see the first Lethal Weapon movie. It's, it's actually sort of kind of a dark movie, but, uh, you know. 
Let you me know if anybody yeah. wants Netflix and chill, and we'll do it. All right. All right. In the meantime, thank you guys for joining us. As we Thanks. said, we will definitely be covering X-Men next week. Uh, we've got Alice Through the Looking Glass. Is that what it's through called? Through the Looking Glass. Um, down the Pipeline, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, so on and so forth. Tons of movies in the summer. summer We're going to Star Trek. Star Trek, we've got that coming down the pipeline, so definitely check it out. Also, if there's finally movies that you've got around to seeing, uh, you know, that we've done in the past, check it out. We've probably done Anatomy for them, assuming it's 2012 onward, I think. Um, Anyway, thank you guys for joining us (laughs) at the Popcorn Talk, at Movie Anatomy. Check out all those other shows here on Popcorn Talk. They're wonderful. Um, in fact, uh, Action Anatomy, Action Movie Anatomy did uh, their version of Nice Guys, um, so check that out. Very different show from ours, so the two always ends up being a nice companion. Um, and tell your friends. Bye. Bye. Producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the rest of the Anatomy of a Movie staff. We would like to thank you for listening and subscribing to the show. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email or tweet us. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been Anatomy of a Movie.